Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. There's an old Zen koan about a woman named Sei. She loves her childhood friend, but her father has other ideas about who she should marry. Sei follows her heart. She runs off and marries the man that her father doesn't want her to marry, and they live happily for many years, as if in a dream. Some years later, she and her husband return to reconcile with her father. The father is confused. Who is this woman you've brought here, he asks the man. Why, it's your daughter, Say, says the man. Nonsense, said the father. Say is here, sick on her bed, where she has been since I forbade her from marrying the man she wanted to marry. The father leads them into the room, where Say is indeed lying on her bed, ailing. The two Say's see each other, and in an instant, unite into one. The koan then asks, Say and her soul are separated. Which one is the real say? It's a wonderful koan that calls to mind the famous Chinese philosopher Zhuang Zhe, who had a dream of a butterfly that was so clear and vivid that upon waking, he did not know whether he was a butterfly who dreamed he was a man, or a man who dreamed he was a butterfly. Which one is the real state of consciousness? Is the dream state less real than the waking state? Is the visionary state less important than what we call normal waking consciousness? And how have we historically treated those states of consciousness that veer from what has been termed normalcy? Does what we call normal waking consciousness even bear resemblance to how humans experience the world for most of our history? It's no secret that in the modern Western understanding of consciousness, certain states are afforded the status of more important or real than others. The visionary state, the dream state, has been sidelined. But, like the bedridden say in the story, we are perhaps not complete unless the visionary state is honored. Today on the Emerald, say and her soul are separated, the colonization of consciousness, and reclaiming the visionary state. century Europe, you probably had to be pretty careful who you told about your dreams. Dreams, of course, were prone to be the province of unnatural forces. And if your dreams were too vivid or too lucid, or too filled with fawn-like imagery or creatures with horns or wings, you may be branded a witch and tortured or burned alive. The Western religious vision of acceptable states of mind, in which that which followed the strict guidelines of the church was good, and all that sniffed of liminal freedom, intuition, imagination, nature-based lore, was bad, eventually gave way to a scientific vision, an enlightened vision, it was called, in which intuition and imagination 
fared no better at all. While visions and dreams ceased to be associated with devilry, they were sidelined by science as irrelevant, irrelevant at best, or pathological at worst. This irrelevance, combined with a new, but really not so new, worldview that centered what science called reason, combined with the slow death of the direct experiential gnosis gained from proximity to and reverence towards nature, fundamentally rewired brains, compartmentalized intuition and imagination, and repackaged them complete with a lot of warning signs. Warning. Intuition is chaos. Hello, Jordan Peterson. It is less than reason. It is the domain of females and wandering artists. It is a hindrance to progress. It is superstition. It is primitive. We can call this, loosely, the colonization of consciousness. Every culture does it in its own way. Every culture has its veil through which it views the world. In the case of European culture, however, the age of reason and enlightenment went hand-in-hand with European domination of cultures who still centered the intuitive and imaginative state and this contact reinforced Eurocentric views of consciousness. The trance states and intuitive states and dream states that many of the cultures conquered by Europeans centered were exoticized, laughed at, ridiculed, sidelined. At best seen as sideshow curiosities, in the case of the fakirs of India, at worst persecuted altogether. As anthropologist Wade Davis says, One of the things that offended the British the most about the Australian Aborigines, for example, was that they had no intention of altering their environment in the name of progress. For the Brits, this was clearly an indication of a lesser, primitive state of consciousness. In reality, it was a conscious choice born from access to the dream time, an intuitive and visionary state of reciprocity with the natural world. But the idea that it could be a conscious choice and that this conscious choice could stem from an experience of the universe driven by something other than reason applied to technological advancement for the purposes of subjugation of land and resource was totally inconceivable to British minds. By the early 1900s, Western researchers were starting to put forward a hierarchical vision of consciousness, which of course put normal waking consciousness, or NWC, at the top of the pyramid. NWC was almost synonymous with rationality, which was seen to be the most lucid and least problematic state of consciousness, and therefore the best. In relation to the story of Say, This is the state in which one fulfills one's social obligations and marries who one is supposed to marry, a nice, well-organized psychosphere. Below normal waking consciousness is the pre-conscious, those memories that are accessible but not always present, the subconscious, sleeping, daydreaming, and the unconscious. And then, at the bottom of the pillar, least understood and therefore sidelined, are altered states of consciousness, A-S-C. So yeah, this classification is utterly arbitrary. It doesn't directly relate to brain function, we now know, and it is clearly and entirely a product of culture. 
Europeans basically painted a picture for us of their own fractured minds. For 2,000 years, Indian yogis had defined consciousness along very different terms. In the yogic and Buddhist traditions, what we in the West would call normal waking consciousness was not considered a state of wakefulness at all. In fact, it was seen as sleepwalking almost, impulse-driven, deeply reactive and problematic, a prison from which to be freed, a place of endless mental chatter that could lead a person to conflate, for example, contentment with material progress. That normal, vritti-saturated mind might lead a person to believe that the accumulation of stuff, or conquest, or subjugation of others might make them happy, a view which, for the yogi, was completely laughable, and for the colonist was perfectly rational. Shamanic traditions around the world also demonstrate a tiered vision of cosmos and consciousness, except that for most of these cultures, what Western scientists label as normal waking consciousness occupies only that thin band around the eyes and the horizon line, what has been called the second world, the world of external objective reality. And the goal of most of these shamanic and meditative traditions has been the obliteration of the second world in favor of travel into the true heights of consciousness, the purple astral vaults of the crown and beyond, where the self dissolves into a state of universal knowing, and one gains insight, knowledge of the natural world, and potency directly from the source. This is the high place of consciousness, the expanded sphere of consciousness, it's a very real place. And to say that it has been charted and explored by shamans, psychonauts, meditators, ecstatic visionaries, orphic bards, devotional poets, lotus eaters, seers, rishis, and tantrikas is an understatement. What the West sidelined as the altered state was literally home for many thousands of seers and seekers over the ages an area so vast that you could say it would dwarf all physical maps of the known universe, if it took up any space at all. The practice of exploring this place via projecting the spirit or consciousness from the crown is done in such diverse places as Finland, Botswana, India, Siberia, and Brazil. In Tibet, the practice was refined to a replicable science. The Sami people in Lapland have a breadth of trance states, described from light trance, in which the person is still aware of their surroundings, to full trance, in which the body seems to be dead. The Yoruban Ifa traditions have similar gradations of trance described in loving detail. The yogic texts outline all the stages on the way to Samadhi, or full absorption of the consciousness, and along the way, all the sounds that are heard, the luminosities that are experienced, one by one by one. This 
vast psychic geography, of course, was utterly foreign to the church-sanctioned or science-approved consciousness of the 17th or 18th or 19th century European explorer, and so was routinely deemed nonsense or devil worship or primitivism, you know, by the people who knew what normal was. At the same time that Western religion was demonizing the dream state, the Tibetan tantrikas had a fully cultivated yogic system, yoga nidra, which gave the practitioner the ability to navigate the dream world with lucidity and ease. In the Dzogchen traditions, we encounter some of the most beautiful descriptions of consciousness, gradations of consciousness, as if someone took a fine, fine sieve to consciousness and parsed out its most delicate luminosities mirror-like awareness, spacious awareness, non-crystallizing awareness, crystallizing awareness, awareness of sameness, all-inclusive awareness, the clear light of pure presence, self-sprung awareness, awareness of the basis of attributes. Here's a quote. The wisdom awareness is the awareness that arises from within the expanse of the universal ground, like the sun shining in the expanse of the sky. Luminous in its essence while empty in its nature, this knowing awareness is free from concepts. In it arises the threefold dynamism of visions, sounds, lights, and rays. It arises as lights in the clear sky reverberates as self-arisen sounds within the empty expanse and projects itself as the rays of non-dual consciousness. In South India, bhavana, or imagination, was considered the pinnacle of consciousness, the place where one reached the sweetness and fluidity of divine flow. Stories were told specifically to jolt the listener into the imaginative state, like this one, which begins, somewhere or other, in a city that was totally non-existent, a wide and empty city like stars reflected in water. There were three handsome and courageous princes. Two of them had never been born, and one never even entered the womb. Or the Vedic creation hymn, which opens with a line designed to transport the minds of the listener directly into the non-linear. There was neither existence nor non-existence then. These cultural visions of consciousness, accessed through direct experiential practice over thousands of years, have to be considered when we talk about what is ultimately real when it comes to consciousness. Psychologist William James said that what we think of as normal waking consciousness is only one type of consciousness, quote, whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. Thank you.
right. So we've seen how Western thought puts normal waking consciousness at the top of the hierarchy and altered states of consciousness at the bottom. Let's look a little deeper at what normal and altered even mean. Consider that on the list of things that are likely to lead to an altered state of consciousness, we have the following. Fasting, sleep deprivation, traumatic experience, prolonged physical activity such as endurance athletics, pharmacological induction. Then consider that hunter-gatherers for 300,000 years, that's all of our ancestors, at any given time were pretty much constantly doing at least one of these things. Long periods of no food and extreme endurance, sleep deprivation when chasing down herds, exposure to environmental extremes, plant substances. So the upshot is that what we call altered, they might call normal. Now consider the things that we fail to consider when we describe our state of consciousness as normal. Like the fact that sitting in a square room beneath fluorescent light for hours at a time might alter our consciousness. Disrupting the natural pineal governance of the system through prolonged exposure to artificial light might alter consciousness. That a sedentary existence, which leaves us without the benefits of many of the sense-enhancing hormones that our ancestors had coursing through their veins on a regular basis, might alter consciousness. That keeping kids glued to their school desks at a time when their bodies are wanting nothing more evolutionarily than to move might alter consciousness. That playing Fortnite eight hours a day, yeah, that might alter consciousness. And then there's our normal substance intake that we use to bolster our normal waking consciousness, like alcohol. No offense to everyone's favorite pastime, but isn't it interesting that the culture that deemed itself worthy of naming which state of consciousness is real or normal is also the culture in which, at the time of early 20th century writings on rationality and reality, considered it totally normal to consume huge amounts of hard liquor with every meal, three times as much as the hardest drinking nations consume today, in fact. That's a bottle of scotch at least per person per day. And yet, that's the state from which our understanding of real states of consciousness arose. Incidentally, these arose in the same time period when the rational West was sending millions of its young off to the trenches to slaughter each other over a few yards of mud. But that's another story. Is it a coincidence that the substances that are most common in the modern-day regimen of normalcy, alcohol, caffeine, antidepressants, anti-anxiety meds, all share the common trait of detaching us from empathetic experience, in contrast to the plant entheogens that were the preferred substance of choice for most of human history, which have an empathetic effect? Have these normalized substances had an impact on what we call normal? Absolutely. Depression, anxiety, cynicism, these have become the new normal state of consciousness. Within these parameters, revelatory spiritual experience seems far off for many of us. We assume that this is because we're smarter now in a postmodern world, and not as gullible as our ancestors. There's that progress measure again. We assume that because we have an explanation for things, we don't need spiritual experience. We don't stop to consider that the reason we culturally tend not to have such experience 
is that our consciousness has been completely removed from the type of lifestyle that leads to those experiences. And yet, we consider ourselves arbiters of the real. When it comes to consciousness, who ultimately has the right to say what's real? Psychologists? Disillusioned French philosophers with way too much time on their hands? Leftist academia? Zen monks? Cave artists? Who? I want to talk for a moment about cave art, and not necessarily about the consciousness of the people who made it, though we will get into that a little. More about the consciousness of the people who discovered it, tens of thousands of years later. When 17th century Europeans began discovering massive caves with their stunning galleries of painted imagery, first they ignored it as the irrelevant doodles of some wandering shepherds. They could not conceive of or imagine the time frame involved. Because, in contrast to other cosmological systems like that of the Mayans or that of the Indian subcontinent, which measured time in billion-year increments, the 17th century European worldview did not acknowledge that the universe was more than a few thousand years old. Then, once it was recognized years later that humans did in fact have ancient ancestors, the assumption was still that there was no way such paintings could have been done by these people. Anyone who put forward the idea that such art could come from primitive culture was ridiculed. The fact that in some cases perspective was used was touted as proof, because on the perceived ladder of progress, perspective was a creation of the Enlightenment, and there's no way humans thousands of years ago could have been so advanced so all the paintings were dismissed as fakes. Once it was finally admitted that these paintings were indeed done by humans thousands of years ago, then scientists could only imagine the most primitive of intentions behind the paintings. They saw deer. They painted deer. They saw lions. They painted lions. Then, okay, perhaps primitive hunting magic. Finally, just recently, scholars have started to accept the profound vision of consciousness and imaginative revelation that is displayed on the cave wall, and the unified vision of consciousness that it represents. That entry into the upper Paleolithic caves, as David Lewis Williams has said, was indistinguishable from entry into the mental vortex that leads to the experience of deep trance. To one versed in the visionary state, to one with their trance ears open, a common language would be leaping off of those walls that would not have taken 300 years to decipher, the placement of the paintings in the most acoustically resonant chambers, naturally. The geometric patterning at the entranceway is akin to the patterning one sees as one begins the entrance into the trance state. The skin of stone on the wall, a membrane that could be passed through to the spirit world, just as the artist's canvas has always been a portal to another world. Cracks in the rock as doorways through which spirits could travel, and so the common theme of beings emerging from these cracks in art from Europe to Africa. Half-animal, half-human beings that any Indian village trance medium would recognize as depictions of the experience of the human being in trance. 
threads of light that spiritual journeyers from Finland to South Africa would recognize as a direct depiction of the experience of meditative travel. This liminal language of consciousness was not available to those who re-encountered these caves, because they simply had no idea how deaf and dumb and most likely drunk they would have seemed to the artist visionaries who originally painted these images. That this language did not leap from the cave wall, did not communicate itself directly to those who encountered these caves for several centuries, shows how foreign the state of trance, the state of revelatory ecstatic experience had become. How the animate, animistic, energized, vivid, permeable, living, breathing world had been systematically driven from the human mind and heart, the colonization of consciousness. When I was a kid, there was an actual proposal in place to sell advertising on satellites with the vision of having mile-wide screens in place that could display massive corporate logos in the sky, a floating Times Square, a Blade Runner-like vision of a sky saturated with illuminated advertising. This was pre-internet, so corporations were not yet attuned to the idea that the colonization of consciousness need not happen on such an objectively massive scale that a tiny screen that has our undivided attention is, in effect, as big as the sky. Now the screen is colonized space in ways that the colonizers of old could barely imagine. The Genghis Khans of their day had a very cut-and-dry colonial vision. Suffice to say, they couldn't envision a world in which, on one of their raids, a cavalry soldier would pause and utter aloud, I'm in the mood for some hot pot, only to be presented with five options in a drop-down menu. The tyranny of the screen, of course, has an exponential effect of the sidelining of the imaginative state, mostly because there is now no need to be imaginative. There's no time at which pre-generated content is not available to us. I remember being a kid and having to wait for the bus. There was literally nothing to do, nothing to do but imagine. This is where the first fantasy worlds began to flood my brain. This is where the first imaginary languages I made up started to be shaped. I probably would not have imagined those worlds, constructed those languages, if I'd been sitting in front of a screen. Now, all of that empty space is populated with screens. The screen itself with its contrived luminosity and its easy navigability, is in many ways an imitation of the lucid permeability of the imaginative state. Internet companies and chip manufacturers put forward a narrative vision of pulsing networks of light, which is, of course, a cheap knockoff of the true pulsing network of light that is the experience of luminous interconnectedness available in meditation. The Colonization of Consciousness But before we start shouting, burn the system and down with patriarchy, it is worth reflecting on the fact that the colonization of consciousness is not simply the domain of what has been termed the patriarchy. As I said, all cultures do it in their own way. 
The political left is a distinct culture, with its distinct views and parameters, which themselves may not ultimately be right, or the real say. The left as it currently is, is definitely not free of the tendency to try to colonize consciousness. Decolonized movements certainly have their value in bringing much-needed attention and awareness to issues of how colonialist tropes pervade society. But decolonize also veers into replacing one worldview with another worldview that is also deterministic, inflexible, and seeks to monopolize how we see, think, and feel, and most importantly, how we speak. It is worth questioning for those of us who harbor what were once termed liberal political ideals, where in this vision of the new left the imaginative space is given room to breathe, to explore, and self-reflect. It is worth looking at how often the non-patriarchal left acts exactly like the father in the koan, seeking to control where the free-thinking daughter of imaginative thought journeys. The more the left seeks to set the boundaries of what is appropriate use of word and thought and imagination, the more it butts up against the visionary space of the seer and artist. You see, part of the shamanic vision, the imaginative vision, has always been the ability to sit within the undefinable and uncomfortable, to feel it for what it is, and to not run to the convenience of prefabricated narratives or vernaculars. The imaginative state leads one into spaces that do not fit norms. This can be uncomfortable, but it is essential. The current phenomena of cancel culture, in which an artist sees themselves and their work suddenly become non grata because of one controversial opinion they may have said out loud, is a perfect example of the left shutting down the imaginative state. Film critic Nick Pinkerton recently spoke with Dasha Nekrasova on an episode of the Red Scare podcast in disbelief about the state of storytelling and cancel culture, how he had been raised to think that, quote, being a person in the arts gave you some license to explore verboten territory, to reckon with things that are complicated and ugly, and that the artist almost has a duty to do so. We need art and imagination to continue to challenge cultural narratives on all sides of the spectrum. So finally, back to our koan. Just so we're clear, I'm not trying to solve the koan, or say that the way I'm talking about the koan is the right way. Koans are to be meditated upon, not just cerebrally analyzed, and they have many, many levels to them. Of course, in fine Zen fashion, it may be that when say and her soul are separated, neither are the real say for what is real. Or it may be that both are the real say for isn't everything real? I'm not suggesting that the solution to humanity's problems is that everyone should walk around in a state of trance all the time. I'm simply putting forth that in a world in which the balance has tipped so far to a mindset that sees a soulless world, it is time to reclaim the value of imagination. I'm suggesting that the geographies of our minds and hearts can and must be more than the soulless and fractured geography of a suburban development lot that the artist and visionary must not be sequestered simply to the role of distractor or generator of capital. In an episode not too far back on Magic Rocks, 
I said that there are certain things that cannot be understood unless they are understood in the visionary state. This state has much to offer us in a global situation in which we already seem to have written the end of the story, and the only way out of the mess we're in may in fact be to imagine our way out. Science, of course, has now come full circle in how it views imagination. Once the great extoller of the rational, science increasingly finds that the irrational aspects of the human brain benefit human beings tremendously, now putting out studies with titles like The Human Brain Wasn't Designed to be Rational. As cognitive psychologist Colin Martinsdale says, we need to explore altered states of consciousness. We need to consider the irrational thought of the poet. Those irrational poets might just hold the keys to the future. This podcast episode contains reference to several books and podcasts. David Shulman's More Than Real, Everything is Light by Keith Dauman on the profound and beautiful tradition of Tibetan Dzogchen meditation. The Six Lamps by Jean-Luc Achar. The Mind in the Cave by David Lewis Williams. Zen Comments on the Mumon Khan. And of course, the Red Scare podcast. Listen at your own risk. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon P A T R E O N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.